or we having fun yet? <laughs> what a day, beautiful day, Memorial Day weekend. I hope that doesn't get lost in all of this. We're standing on the backs of generations who have gone before us, who have given us amazing freedoms in this country, uh, who gave their lives uh, so we could have what we have. Uh, very grateful for that. I do not want that to be remiss today. Also, since Friday, I don't know why, but my email is blowing up. Text. Are we going to gather on Sunday morning? Are we not going to gather on Sunday morning? Um, anyway, old Donald, um, you know, kind of changed the game a little bit. Here's what I want to say. There's a lot I could say. There's even a lot that I want to say that I'm not going to say. But what I am going to say is this. We as a leadership team at Crossroads are doing everything we can to get God's heart for this church, and in that to make plans. And we're also finding that as we're trying to be diligent and to get his heart and to plan, to pastor our church, to shepherd, that our plans almost change day by day. And a big reason for that is, in many ways, God, like a good shepherd, has not only led our church you could almost say the whole world, into the desert. The desert is a hard place, but the desert is a good place. And the desert is a place where God takes from our hands the control that we think we have over our lives and forces our gaze upon him to show us what our hearts truly need. And so... In this season, we're not in a rush to go faster than God, certainly not slower than God, but we want to just be right behind him. So for the next month, we feel like God is saying, the way Crossroads needs to relaunch, in many ways, we need to replant ourselves as a church, which to me is incredibly exciting. Because now in light of something that we did almost 20 years ago, and Dan Mike reminded me of this. This is our anniversary Sunday. I don't know what year it is, 17, 18, or 19. Um, we planted this church. Since that time, hundreds, thousands of people have joined this movement. And now together we get to replant this church into a new setting, a new time, new challenges new ways of doing ministry, uh, not giving up all the old ways. Uh, but this is exciting. And uh, so in this, this is the one thing I ask. The self-righteousness that I see on both sides, even in my own heart, the judging of other people must not be in the church this is the way that we as a church can show ourselves to be different than the world. We can love each other, believe the best about each other, seek to understand each other, empathize with each other, encourage each other, all the more as we see the day drawing near. So let's uh, step into John chapter 6. 
We're looking at John's gospel. Last week we looked at how Jesus put on a picnic for the thousands of people who are following him. The text says that 5,000 men were present. The crowd could have been as large as 20,000 if you include uh, women and children. And Jesus takes five loaves and makes bread for 5,000. Now here's something to think about. John is actually writing his gospel 40 to 50 years after this miracle took place. Christianity has broken out. Uh, it, 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 it's much like COVID-19 in that it's incredibly contagious and it's spreading all over the world. And John is a pastor in, in this region when he, when he writes this gospel, a region that we today call Asia Minor. The three main gods of Asia Minor at this time are Dionysius, who's the god of wine. In fact, he was known to turn water into wine. Asclepius, who's the god of healing. Demeter, who's the goddess of bread, provides food. Think about the three first miracles in John's gospel. He turns water to wine. He heals a man at the Asclepion. And then he makes bread for thousands. This is not a coincidence. John is declaring to his world who the true Lord is. Jesus is the one who turns water to wine. Jesus is the true healer. Jesus is the one who provides us our bread. And I would say this. Asclepius, Dionysia, Demeter are not gods of the past. They are alive and well today. Just because we don't build temples to this God or attach a name of a God to these things, sex, food, sports, money, pleasure, are things that we still give our life to. We worship these things. This is why I loved Dan's sermon last week. He centered that whole sermon on Jesus' question, where? Where do we buy bread? Do we look to Demeter or do we look to Jesus? Let's read our text for today. John 6, beginning with verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, the sign being the bread for 5,000 people, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went to the lake. There they got into a boat. They set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing. The waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened, but he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now this whole story here, maybe one of the most dramatic in the life of Jesus, is sandwiched between the picnic that he put on for 5,000 people, and then after this, uh, he will explain that picnic and, and, and what it means. 
So Jesus walking on water is actually part of this same event. And Jesus calls this whole event a sign. Remember, signs are Jesus using the miracle to paint a picture of who he is and why he came to the world. So the walking on water is is all part of the picture that this great Rembrandt is painting. And it's a stunning picture. Do you see it? Because Jesus' audience see more than a miracle. They see the picture. That's why in verse 14, they say, truly, this is the prophet. And this is not a put down, because Moses, right before he dies, says that the day will come when one like me, the prophet, will come, a new Moses. Which is why in verse 15, they come to Jesus and they want to make him king by force. Because they're convinced the new Moses is here. Now, another reason why I think this miracle elicits such a response from the people is when you go to verse 4. We didn't read this, but it talks about Passover drawing near. Passover is, is in the air. And we have to ask ourselves, what is Passover? Passover is the greatest feast on the Jewish calendar celebrating the greatest event in their history. It's what we call the Exodus. Exodus is when God rescues them from slavery in Egypt, when God leads them into the desert, when God binds his heart to Israel in that desert, when God and Israel are just intimately bound in this relationship of intimacy. And I think the thing that best flushes out this special relationship that God has with Israel is the manna. Every day, God rained down this bread from heaven. In fact, the psalmist calls this angel food. It's literally the food that the angels themselves eat. And every day, God provided this food. And then to think that as awesome as this manna is, every day you'd go out and pick up this food that came from heaven. That is still just a window into something even more, how God became their manna, how God became their food, how his very words became the true manna. And that's how God turned that desert into Eden. This is the picture that Jesus is recreating through the miracle. And what's amazing about this sign, think about what Matthew's gospel tells us in his account. It says the disciples' hearts were still hard. They don't see. Their hearts are still blind to who Jesus is. So this next event is not for the masses. It's for the disciples to deal with their hardness of heart. In fact, come back with me to the Exodus story. Because between Egypt where God rescues them and the desert where God dwells with them is maybe one of the most dramatic stories in the whole Bible. Israel's traumatically stuck between Pharaoh and his approaching armies and the sea. And the sea in the biblical story is more than just a body of water. The sea is this untamed, uncontrollable force that wreaks havoc upon God's creation 
It's the abyss. It's the home of the forces of chaos. The powers and principalities that Paul talks about of this dark world that war against us. This is why the revelation, in Revelation, the beast comes out of the sea. Why the beast and the great dragon later in Revelation will be thrown into the sea. It's why Jesus, when he drives out the, the legion of demons, he casts them into the sea. When God creates the world, the first thing that he does is he makes war upon the watery chaos. He moves into it. He separates it. He rules. He subdues it. He puts the sea in its place. So when God parts the sea for Israel, he's doing all over again what he did at creation. He's moving into the watery chaos, conquering it, subduing it, putting it in its place. In fact, listen to Psalm 77. The waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee. They were afraid. The watery depths were troubled. Thy way is in the sea, thy path is in the great waters, and yet thy footsteps are not known. Thou leadest thy people like a flock. And obviously I read that in the King James Version because it captures it. But who is going before God's people as they walk between those two walls of water whose footsteps are unknown? Well, Jude 1 verse 5 says this. Now, I want to remind you that Jesus rescued a people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus. Not even the Lord. God, or, 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 or even Messiah, but Jesus. And now we come to this text in John 6. Jesus sends his disciples ahead via boat. All they need to do is hug that shoreline of the Sea of Galilee a couple of miles to get to a town called Capernaum. But the sea comes alive, the wind, the waves, the storm. In fact, they get tossed into the middle of it. Matthew's gospel says the boat was a considerable distance from land. John's gospel gives us the specifics. He says they were three to four miles out to sea. They're being overtaken by it. And I think we just think the disciples, these poor guys, they just got hit with some bad weather, but that's not what they're thinking. They're thinking the forces of evil have awoken. They're unleashing their fury upon us to swallow us up. Have you been there? Have you been in a place where you could say what the psalmist says in Psalm 69? Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in my miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. These waters engulf me. I'm worn out for calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail. Looking for my God. Well, if we haven't been there, we're not there, we will all be there someday, where the waters are up to our neck, sinking, no foothold, afraid, discouraged, despairing, angry, fighting a losing battle, worn out from calling out to God, 
eyes that fail to see God? Are you there? Many of us are there right now. Could be your job, your marriage. Could be this virus and all its effects. Some of you right now are battling demons from your past. Addictions. Relationships that are still hurting you, haunting you. And I would say this, there's, there's nothing more discouraging than in our hour of deepest need when it feels like God is absent. My God, where are you? Here's my question, is, is Jesus absent? Now Mark's gospel here gives us a detail that I think almost goes unnoticed Mark says, after leaving the disciples, Jesus went up to a mountain to pray. Now, if you know the geography, there are two good options for for mountains in this region. The Golan Heights, and then also Mount Arbel. I think Mount Arbel is the best option because it hugs the lake. It's the only mountain right on the lake, and it's where the disciples will eventually land their boat. Here it is for you to look at. We climb that mountain every year. Here you're looking at Mount Arbel from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And yeah, it gets waves like that all the time. That's actually on a nice day. And there's two people, if you look closely, looking out on the Sea of Galilee. And if you look at this, you can easily conclude that Jesus can see the disciples. He can probably hear them. And what is he doing? Mark's gospel tells us he's praying. Praying for who? His disciples. And how can I be so confident of this? Because Matthew's gospel tells us that the disciples' heart was still hardened after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus loves these guys. Jesus is discipling these guys. He's preparing them to send them into the world to change the world. This whole event is just for them. Jesus sent them into the storm. That's right. Jesus sends us into storms. The storm isn't there to hurt them. The storm is there to help them. And think about this, as they are battling that storm all night, wondering where Jesus is, Jesus is praying for them. Hebrews 7, verse 24 and 25 says this, we have a permanent high priest in Jesus Christ who lives to always intercede for us. Right now, whether you know it or not, whether he feels distant from you or not, he is praying for you. He is interceding on on your behalf. In fact, Romans 8 says, he is interceding with us with groans that words could not explain. And then when the storm becomes more than these guys to handle... Jesus comes to them. Can you just 
envision that? Jesus coming towards his disciples, walking on that water. John does not use the common word for walk here. He uses an unusual word, the word that literally means to stroll or to sightsee. Jesus is out for a stroll on the abyss, taking in the sights. Job 9 verse 8 says this about God, the Lord alone stretches out the heavens and he alone treads on the waves of the sea. See, Jesus is using all of this, the storm, to blow up their paradigm of who they think Jesus is. He's cracking their hard hearts. Who is this? They know their text. Only the Lord treads on the waters. They know Psalm 89. Oh, Lord God, who is this? Oh, mighty Lord, you rule the swellings of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Now, maybe what Jesus says is even more shocking than the stroll on the waters itself. He gets close enough where they can hear him, and he says, It is I. Do not be afraid. That's what he says to us in the storm. It is I. Do not be afraid. I understand why the translators translate it this way. It is I. But it most literally reads, I am. Do not be afraid. Do you remember Moses when he first encountered God? Moses says to God, he says, God, what is your name? Because to a Hebrew, a name is the essence of who one is, he's saying back to God, God, who are you? And God says back to Moses, I am who I am. My name is I am. In Hebrew, it's four letters, yod heh vav heh Jews call to this day the unutterable name of God because it's too holy for them to actually speak. So they instead call him Adonai, which means Lord And every time you see Lord in your Old Testament, it's on almost every page several times. It's Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, I am. And just think about why God chose that name. What that name means. It means this. It means that everything God has been in the past Everything that God has been to my parents, to my grandparents, and you can even take it all the way back. Everything God has been to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everything that God has been to God's people throughout the ages, he will be that right now to us. You see what an incredible thing that is. Especially when we experience the storm, when we experience loss, or how about the ultimate storm itself, death. God will be 
then what he is now and what he always has been. And Jesus is saying, that's who I am. I'm that God. I am. Do not be afraid. And see, this is why Jesus sends us into storms. This is how God uses the storms in our lives, why he allows the storms. Because storms reveal our hearts. They, they reveal our idols. They, they, they reveal the things that we trust, that we go to. The Demeters of the world, Dionysius. The Asclepions. The lesser things, the hollow things, the lifeless things, destructive things that we have substituted for God. In Genesis 22, God comes and tests Abraham. I bring this up because this is the first sermon that was ever preached at Crossroads on our, on our anniversary Sunday. I ought to bring this into play. God says to Abraham, I want you to take the son whom you love most, Isaac, and I want you to give him up. <laughs> I mean, this storm was the greatest storm Abraham ever experienced. And what did Abraham do? He gave up Isaac. Was the storm stilled? Yes. And through that storm, Abraham not only found out how much his heart loved God, but even more, how much his God loved him. Think about Job. Satan comes to, to God and says, you know, Job loves you for one reason. You, you, you've blessed him, but if you would send a storm upon him and wipe out everything that Job has, I promise he will curse you. So God sends a massive storm upon Job. Job loses it all, even his sons and daughters. And what does Job do? His wife says to him, Job, curse God and die. But not Job. Job climbs aboard the only thing that will not sink. And he climbs into the arms of the great I am. And he worships him as Lord. He says, the Lord, the great I am, takes. Gives and the great I am takes away. Blessed be his name. Satan was wrong about Job, but Satan is right. Storms do expose those substitutes in our lives that we think will buoy us and keep us afloat. What are you turning to? What are you looking at? What are you trusting in? Is it the buoy of being liked? There's always going to be haters. Is it the buoy of true love? There's always going to be rejection. Is it the buoy of your money, possessions, your career? There's going to be layoffs, a bad economy. Is it the buoy of your accomplishments? There's always going to be failures. How about pleasure? There's going to be addictions despair that comes from trusting pleasure 
What about health and beauty? We get old. We get old and, as my brother says, very ugly. Even Paul was prone. And, and those of us in ministry are, are, are prone to ministry. God sends a storm. Paul calls it a thorn in the flesh. Paul says, I pleaded with God, take this storm away. But God said to me, Paul, I like this storm. I can use this storm in your life. And he did. To show Paul that God is enough. What's holding your life up? What are you building your life upon right now? Is it a buoy or is it the great I am? Do you know what this is the moment? When the disciples give their hearts to Jesus? When their hardness of heart is replaced with genuine faith? Look at verse 21. Then they were willing to take Jesus into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. That word there for they were glad to take him in, literally, they were glad to receive him. And the word receive there is a technical term in John. John 1 verse 12, it says, And to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive Jesus is to bring him in. It's to bring him into your heart. It's to bring him into your life. It's to bring him into your boat, especially in the storm. And it's bringing in him for who he is, the great I am. Because we can be really good at believing in Jesus, but keeping him at arm's distance. Matt Kenny said this this week. He said, there is no storm that Jesus sends us into that he is not willing to enter with us. This is why the psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He wants to be with us, especially in the storm. This is why he came to the world, to enter our storm, to be with us in the storm, to use the storm, to wean us off of lesser things and to wean us upon himself. In fact, Jesus says that he came to the world to be one greater than Jonah, which is to save us from the storm by being thrown into the storm. Because this is how Jesus ultimately defeats the storm is when he's swallowed up by the sea. And I want to end with this. It's where Dan started us this morning. Jesus is coming back to deal with the storm once and for all. And this time he's not going to just part the storm. He's not going to just tread upon the storm or even still the storm. But when you read the last three chapters of our Bibles, it describes what Jesus is going to ultimately do with the storm. And there Jesus says, behold, I'm making everything new. He says there will be no more weeping, crying, no more disease, cancer, plagues, virus. He says there will be no more death, for the old order has passed and the new has come. Can you imagine such a world? 
The Bible says that when we see him, we'll become like him. Can you see him coming across all worlds to enter our storm? And there's one tiny detail that almost gets lost in these last three chapters about that day that has massive significance. Jesus says there will no longer be any sea. No more evil. No evil one. No more spiritual darkness. Because Jesus says that beast and that dragon will be thrown into that sea and that sea will be no more. Until that day, receive him. Invite him into your heart. Invite him into your life, into your boat. Because like Paul, then, you can boast, even in the midst of the storm. Job, you can even worship in the midst of the storm. Or as the old hymn says, with Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm. Let's pray. I'm just going to pray a prayer. Actually, it's the song I learned as a child. We can still pray this prayer as Christians. We can certainly pray this prayer as non-Christians. Come into my heart. Come into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. All right, Crossroads, uh, we're going to prepare ourselves to take communion. And in John chapter 13, Mark 14, Matthew 26, and uh, Luke 22, we have the words that describe this night, the night Jesus was betrayed. And it says that when they were eating, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, take this, this is my body, broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he passed it and gave it to them and said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. I wonder, as I've been thinking this week, what do we remember in our own personal lives about Jesus what do we remember when we take communion? Because I think it's easy to say, well, we, of course, we remember Christ on the cross. That's what we ought to remember. But when did that truth in your life penetrate and intersect with your daily life? When were you crushed by that? When did that change you? And maybe not in just one moment, but over time. And as Rod shared at the end, when did, did it really sink in that this is my Savior who died for me? 
I think it's worth remembering the times that Jesus looked us in the face and said, this was for you. I did this for you. And if you haven't had a moment like that in a while, what better time to just get on your knees as a family and say, I don't just want to say, I do this in remembrance of your death on the cross. Speak to the Lord this morning. Fathers, pray over your, your children over, and, and spouses, pray together. And if you're at home by yourself, talk to the Lord and say, I want to meet with you in this. I want to remember that you did this for me. Let's not go through the motions this morning, Crossroads. We have a God who meets us in our storms, and our greatest storm is the storm of sin in our own hearts. He wants to forgive us of that sin and bring us peace and bring us back to the Father. And we remember that when we take communion. So uh, let's do that together. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for dying on the cross for my sin. And what I'm remembering, Lord, of you right now in this moment is all those times when I messed it up royally. When my sin, like it says in Psalm 51.3, and my transgressions, I see them and my sin, it's ever before me. I've had those moments and every time you've moved in to that space, you've grabbed me by the face and you've said, I love you. I died for you. I don't have to be hopeless in my sin. I don't have to carry that shame. I don't have to carry that guilt. Thank you. And I remember it. I want to remember it every moment, Lord. So I just pray for every person in Crossroads as we take communion that that would be on our minds and our hearts. We have so much worth remembering about your goodness, your provision, your blessings. But the greatest thing we have is the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. So we do this now in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen.